This is the Baymall Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, I am joined by Reed Dent to discuss Thomas, a seemingly strange disciple, and question the nature of doubt and belief. Oh, yeah. Hey, Brent. Howdy. Howdy. Surely, uh, no doubt, uh, this will be a short episode, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, no doubt. I see what you did there. Uh, um, well, we're only going to do, we're only going to really do a portion of the passage, uh, that we're, we're actually reading, um, in an effort to keep it relatively short, but I'm way past the point of making promises. My reputation precedes me. Um, I did go on the Israel trip, uh, like a month ago, month and a half ago. And, uh, a lot of people had a lot of comments about the length of the Bama episodes that I've done. So it is what it is. I'm, I just give up at this point. All right. Well, let's, let's jump in then. Uh, yeah, let's do it. We're actually going to pick up a little bit of the passage that, uh, L and I went over last time, just because it, it kind of ties in with the, the, uh, Thomas side of this story. So, um, we're going to be in John 20, starting in verse 19. Um, even though we already covered it officially, but that's all right. (laughs) Every verse plus is what we're calling this. Uh, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you, blah, 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 Holy Spirit. Okay, so... (laughs) That's what we covered last time. That's the right response to that. Blah, blah, blah. You know, I, <laughs> no, I, I've, I've read and looked at even more on that little chunk of the passage since last time. And it's like, man, there's some, there's, you know, there's so much stuff you could explore there, but yeah, well, and I mean, I don't know what was said last time yet. Um, cause we're recording this before that episode has released, but I'm also pretty confident that the Bayma listeners, uh, are, you know, informed and astute enough that all that stuff that you blah blah through, they probably have lots of great connections and thoughts about that anyway. Um, yeah, so it's good. We can blah 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 it for now. Yes, yes. Uh, okay, so now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my finger where the nails were, and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Yeah. And just a note on that, uh, which I think is going to come up later. Uh, the the Greek, apparently I've learned from the NET footnotes, the Greek very often omits direct objects when mm-hmm. whatever the context is, is clear. Okay. And so the NET actually adds the object back into the text. They say... You know, unless I see blah, blah, blah. I will never believe. I will never believe it. It. That they have seen the Lord? Uh, or, or that he has risen or whatever. But but that yeah. specific yeah, sure. instance, whereas the way the NIV reads, it almost seems like I won't believe in Jesus or something. I don't know. Like it just, right. it makes it seem bigger. So anyway, just a, just a note there. For sure. As we, For sure. That, that will probably come back. Am I am I still reading? Or are you done for now? Let's 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 stop here for a second, uh, just to get acquainted with our man here, Thomas. Um, he is a disciple that doesn't get a, a ton of action in the Gospels. 
Um, he does pop up a few times, but I think he's kind of infamous. Um, well, I mean, so what do you think of Brent when you think of Thomas? Uh, I mean, the classic doubting Thomas is the is the line, right? Yeah, I mean, I it's think like even even people who don't know any stories about him at all are familiar with that phrase, doubting Thomas. Yeah, doubting Thomas, almost like his first name is doubting. <laughs> Uh, I mean, so he does have some other sayings. I don't know that it really gets him just cleanly off the hook. Um, but he does say a few other things that I kind of wanted to look at, uh, just to get a sense of, uh, what kind of person are we dealing with here who is saying, uh, kind of so obstinately, unless I see this, I will never believe that. Uh, so John or so Thomas appears a couple other places in John, uh, in John chapter 11, uh, where Lazarus has died. Lazarus has fallen asleep, Jesus says. And the disciples are like, oh, if he's falling, falling asleep, he'll wake up. It's all good. And then Jesus is like, sigh, you know, face palm, palm to the face. How, how do you say that? Face palm, palm to the face. What do people say? Face palm. Face, That's what it is. Face palm. Yes. <laughs> I speak English. Uh, face palm. Okay. I, what I mean is that Lazarus has died. He's not actually asleep. Um, and, uh, we actually covered this story. I covered this story a little while ago on the podcast. Uh, but there's this line here from Thomas that's kind of a weird throwaway. It just like this section of the leading into the transition of them actually going to where Lazarus is. Thomas, uh, it says Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that me, we may die with him. Uh, and I and I wonder, like, what is going on? What does Thomas mean here? Let us also go that we may die with him. Um, it's kind of weird when you think about it. It's kind of macabre. Um, like, what is Thomas feeling or expressing here that he's like wanting to die with with Lazarus? Like, what sense would that make? I also wondered, like, and I don't think this is it, but it's like a weird, inappropriate joke, you know, how people say awkward things uh, that in their mind are funny and end up being kind of weirdly offensive. Uh, it's like, dude, uh, Thomas, like, he he just died, like, too soon, you know? Um, or I wondered maybe more seriously if this is just like uh, – like it, just an expression of mourning. Um, maybe it's his way of grieving. Like maybe he's saying, uh, this, this loss of Lazarus is so unbearable that I wish I were dead. You know, I, I, I don't know. It's, it's a weird way to say it. What is the, how does the NET translate that line there? Uh, let us go to, so that we may die with him. Yeah. I mean, just a, just a weird thing to say, right? I don't know. I mean, that strikes me as strange. I wonder. So, Hmm. Yeah, let me let me just read the the more immediate context here. So uh, it says, after he had said this, he went on to tell them, "Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up." So that's that's what Jesus said when they're going, and then does the disciples replied, "Lord, if he sleeps, he will get better." Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So he then told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas said, let us also go that we may die uh, with him. And actually it specifically says, then Thomas said to the rest of the disciples. So he's not necessarily responding to Jesus. Apparently he's just, right. yeah. he's not like maybe Jesus 
I don't know. Jesus says, let us go to him. Mm-hmm. But maybe, maybe that is the context of the sisters who have come to report his death. Mm. Yeah. I mean, uh, that definitely but, could be, uh, sorry, and- uh, that, that was, that, I'm sidetracked there. So earlier on, uh, the sisters come and say to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Mm-hmm. So maybe Thomas, having heard that, is like, okay, well, Jesus said he's asleep. We thought he meant, you know, normal sleep. Mm-hmm. Jesus clarified, no, he's dead. But <laughs> Jesus already said this sickness won't end in death. Mm-hmm. So he must mean something else. So I, maybe Thomas is just like, I, I don't really understand what's going on, but you know, let's go die the same way that Lazarus has died because apparently that sickness doesn't end in death and it is for God's glory. Sure. Or so that we also, I mean, there, you could take a kind of poetic bent, like maybe Thomas is being kind of deep here and it's like, well, let us go die so that we also can be awakened. Jesus is saying, I'm going to awaken him. Oh, sure. I, I don't really know. I just, it just, um, it's just, it just is strange to me. Um, yeah. And so then you've got Thomas also appears in John 14. Um, Jesus is speaking to the disciples and, uh, he's, this is the, um, I'm going to prepare a place for you. Mm -hmm. Um, so he says, uh, I'm going ahead. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Um, and I will come again and take you to myself that you, that where I am, you may be also, and you know, the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? Uh, and then Jesus says the famous, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Um, which I hear this as, uh, like, it's it's kind of a bold thing in, in my mind. Like, Jesus has j- literally just said, you know the way. Here's Rabbi saying, you know the way. And now student says, we don't know the way. Uh, what do you, excuse me? I I don't really know what you're talking about. Um, which I mean, I, I get what's, I, I can identify with Thomas here. Like I wouldn't really know what Jesus was getting at either. Um, it's, this is a hard thing to wrap your mind around, but then to just say it like that, like so bluntly to be contrarian, uh, we don't know, you know, I don't know. How does that strike you? Yeah. And I, I think it's interesting because Jesus replies, And I think it's a little unclear if he's replying just to Thomas or if he's just kind of like addressing the whole group. Mm -hmm. But then later, or right after that, Philip asked the question. Oh, 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 hold on, hold on. Don't, 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 don't steal the thunder because we're going to get to Philip. Okay. Well, I don't, I don't think this is what you're going to talk about. I just find it interesting that Philip makes a statement after the, I am the way, the truth and life. Philip makes a statement. And then Jesus's response to that includes Philip's name, mm. whereas Thomas's name is not included. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it's a little unclear if, mm-hmm. if it's like Thomas is just kind of asking the question that everyone's already thinking and Jesus kind of addresses the group. Yeah. But then Philip's statement gets like a personal direct response. Yeah. And let's, let's put a pin in that idea of Thomas saying what everyone else is thinking um, because that's, that's kind of in line with how I'm seeing our story for today. Um, so we'll come back to that. Okay. Um, but yeah, we've got Thomas. So he's, he's saying, let's go that we may die with him. We've got him saying, we don't know where you're going. How can we know? 
and then we've got him, uh, his most famous saying from today, unless I see, I will never believe. And I mean, the, the picture that starts to emerge for me of the kind of person Thomas is, um, is, is maybe like, he's a little unvarnished. He says what comes to his mind. Um, there's a, maybe a skeptical like angle to him, even before we get to the, unless I see, I won't believe, um, with the, like, we don't know where, where, where you're going. How can we know? It's almost like, this is a thing that like, how could anybody know, you know? Um, right. so he's, he's like honest with the things that, uh, he doesn't know, uh, the things that he doesn't understand. Um, and so like the, the doubting Thomas thing, um, my question is like, yeah, like he doubts, but the way that we say that in kind of a pejorative way, like looking down on Thomas a little bit, like, I don't know if, I don't know how many people talk about Thomas in like an actual, like insulting kind of way, but I know that for me, like my knee jerk, uh, especially from the kind of like faith and the way that the idea of faith was thought about like growing up was that like Thomas is seen, um, as kind of like his skepticism is, um, just wrong. Like it's dangerous. It's bad to doubt. Um, and my question is, is that fair? Because, you know, the disciples, like what, what they're saying, uh, is the, the, that they have seen the Lord. That's what they say. And I, Thomas is like, yeah, I saw the Lord too, like crucified up there on the cross, uh, just, just days earlier. And now like, you're telling me that he is walking around talking to people and we're like, Oh, Thomas, like, don't, you know, we kind of quote Jesus, but in this sort of, um, offhanded kind of cavalier way of like, I ah, don't be disbelieving, but believing. And I'm, I'm like, who among us wouldn't be skeptical of the disciples claim or of Mary's claim, uh, who among us wouldn't be like, uh, okay, I'm going to have to see like some receipts here. I'm going to have to see some evidence to back this up. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I and I want to what one one of the things that stood out to me in in reading this for those of us who kind of look down not at Thomas maybe at Thomas or at Thomas types who are like, well, Thomas, why couldn't you just be a disciple like the other disciples and just have faith? Um, is that it's 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 crucial to note that in this story, Thomas is not actually the only one who is given if we if we're calling it proof, quote unquote, he's not the only one who's given proof. Um. And even not even not not the only one who's given this specific proof. So this is why I wanted you to back up uh, and read um, the section from the last time is that Jesus shows up to the other disciples. Uh, and what does he do, Brent? He he came and stood among them or appeared. Yes. Um, which, I mean, that's maybe a whole fun discussion yeah that's that we so really weird and i don't, to, I don't but... have any answers to but it's it's a fun thing to think about for sure <laughs> but he says peace be with you uh-huh and then they don't apparently respond at all right and then after he said this he showed them his hands and side he showed them and... his hands and his side <laughs> it, true they're not recorded as asking to see them uh but nevertheless it has some effect, right? Because what are they doing when he shows up? Uh, what are they? What are they doing? What, is it, what does it say they're doing up in that room? Well, they're they have the doors locked. It says because for fear of the leaders, right. the Jewish leaders. So they're afraid, and like they're 
They're afraid such that they're hiding behind locked doors. Uh, and so Jesus shows them his hands inside, and then it says that they were glad. So this has some effect on them, right? Uh, and so maybe, like, Thomas is not the only one struggling here. Maybe the other disciples, like, aren't just... Uh, and, and, like, some of the disciples, too, were there at the tomb, even, in the chapter before, right? Who's who's there with Mary? Uh, yeah, Peter and John. Peter and John, right? And so were they not with the disciples up there in that room? And could they not have told them? And so something, you know, they've, they have seen the risen Lord and, or they haven't seen him yet. Sorry. What they have seen is that he's not there. Right. Um, and the, the messenger appears to Mary, right? But something's going on and they're up there, uh, and they're hiding. And so maybe there's not like a perfect sort of childlike faith. Um, and it gets a little tricky with how we consider Thomas because of even the, how do we, I think a lot hinges and we'll, we'll talk about this in a little bit, but how do we hear Jesus? Like what is the tone of voice that we hear him speaking with when he says, do not disbelieve, uh, but believe, you know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and we can go back. So we talked about Philip too, um, in the John 14 chapter. So the scene where Thomas is like, Jesus says, you know where I'm, you know the way. And Thomas is like, we don't know the way. And Jesus says, I am the way, uh, the truth and the life. And then it says, if you had, this is Jesus talking, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. So there's the, the seeing part again. Sure. And then it says, Philip said to him, Lord, what does he, what does he ask for? Show us the father. Show us and it is enough for us. Which... I don't know, to me, doesn't sound all that different from Thomas saying, unless I see, unless I can put my hand there and see it, I won't believe. Philip, it sounds the same to me. Show us the Father, and that's enough. Which maybe, so the inverse of that is, it's not enough unless you do show us. You know what I'm getting mm. at? Yeah. And so Jesus says, haven't I I've been with you this long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father uh, have you, how can you say, show us the father? And then Jesus says, do you not believe, do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? And so just to, to widen out, like to maybe encourage some charity here for like Thomas. And then for, if we think of particular people who are like, oh, I have to have this proof or that proof to recognize that there is struggle all around and that Thomas isn't even the only one asking to see something. Yeah, totally. So I want to have a I want to have a little bit of a discussion about doubt, uh, just as a, as a concept, as a thing, as a phenomenon, as an experience, and about belief. Uh, so Brent, I'm just going to put you on the spot and ask you just uh, the no right or wrong answer. I just want to know your mind on when you when you think of doubt or when you hear of doubt or someone doubting. Uh, what, what is doubt? Um, and then on the other side of that too, what is, what is belief? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I think doubt would be like, and I guess there's maybe a distinction between rational and irrational doubt, but just mm -hmm. some sort of thing that makes you think what I'm seeing is not real or what I've heard is not real or, you know, just some, some sort of unease or uncertainty about a thing. Okay. Uncertainty. Um, that's a good word. 
Uh, what about belief? What do you think of? Belief, and don't even get me started. There have been... <laughs> I'm getting there have started. been a handful of conversations on Slack recently about the distinctions between belief and faith and okay knowledge and how these things interact and and I just I seriously just want to is it too explode. much is it it's, it's I mean the this the conversation can be super abstract right and it can get yeah. like we're splitting hairs and it's way too weird of distinctions that it's partially that. And it's partially like, I just feel like people are massaging the definitions to get it to say what they wanted to believe. Okay. Or, or, or what they want, want it to be. Okay. Um, which I don't necessarily think like anyone in Slack is doing that, but I just think the conversation in general mm. has a tendency to go that direction. Mm. And at the end of the day, anyone can think anything about any of these words and have, you know, a seemingly rational explanation for the definitions. And ultimately it doesn't really seem like it's a very useful conversation mm. in my experience. Mm. But, uh, anyway, don't tell me. Yeah, no, no, no. That's, that's like, keep, keep that context in mind when I, when I talk about this, because I feel like I have like this, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah conversational trauma or something i don't know yeah but belief would be just the the idea that like you are confident in the truth of something okay and and how that interacts with whether you know how much you know about it how much you've seen yourself uh i, I don't think that's necessarily like there's a whole gradient of possibilities there mm. but belief is just a confidence in a thing Okay. In the truth of a thing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I was thinking about this and I was thinking about doubt, what came into my mind is this quote from A.W. Tozer that I remember hearing just a lot, not anytime recently, but like when I was in campus ministry uh, as a student, like almost 20 years ago. Um, and like maybe even in youth group, I heard this line. Um, but it's, is, is this line from Tozer that says what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Have you heard this quote before? I have not. Okay. It's also sometimes, uh, slightly misquoted as what we think about God is the most important thing about us. <sighs> um, you're laughing. Why, why are you laughing? What do you think? About well, that? just, you know, the idea that somebody would misquote something is amusing. Oh, <laughs> Um, but what do you think about the, so now that you, I'm actually glad that this is fresh for you because I've had this rattling around in my brain for a couple of decades, uh, and trying to, you know, find some, uh, reconciliation with it. Um, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Uh, just snap, snap answer, agree or disagree. Uh, yeah, I, I do think I agree. You do think you agree. Okay. Can you say more about that? Like whatever whatever defining moments we've had in our lives typically when we're young is going to kind of set up a framework for who we are but i think also has a tendency to like establish who we think god is mm. well yeah but it sounds so like, like our our framework for thinking about god was established in the same sort of context or environment as our framework for thinking about ourselves. Okay. I think I get what you're, what you're saying, but there it sounds like the framework in which we come to 
you know, think what we think about God. That framework is the most important thing. But what Tozer is saying is what comes into your mind when you think about God is the most important thing about you. And there's a sense in which I do agree with this um, in the sense that, like, you know, if you think that the sovereignty of God is like his preeminent attribute, uh, then or versus like if you think that love is his preeminent attribute, that's probably going to make a difference uh, in how you, you know, treat people. Uh, or like if the wrath of God is like what you think about when you think about God, um, then that's, you know, that I can definitely see that like impacting the way that you live in the world. Uh, and so in that sense, yeah. But also there's a part of me that's like, no, no, what you think about God, but because the, when I'm putting the emphasis on the word think there, what you think about God is the most mm. important thing because that feels very like European and very intelligentsia, very, you know what I mean? Like, um, intellectual. And it's the kind of sentiment that in the way that it was used in, in my upbringing, um, it, it's the kind of sentiment that makes me think that my chief job as a Christian is to make sure that I have all of my doctrinal ducks in a row, that I think the right things. And that thinking the right things about God is the most important thing about me, because if I think something that is wrong, well, then I'm like, I'm, you know, in danger of the fires of hell or something. Um, it's the kind of sentiment that makes me feel like the, the worst sin that you can commit in Christianity is to fail to um, hold or uphold these kind of different theological propositions about God. And that's ultimately what matters, you know, is if you, if you hold, if you accept the proposition and you think clearly about it and you have like kind of unflinching certainty about it, then that's what's important about you. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's almost like if faith is what you think about God, uh, if that's what faith equals, thinking the right things about God or accepting or agreeing to certain ideas about God, then to uh, to think the wrong thing or to question that those other like that's what doubt becomes as like um, just wondering if you if these things are actually accurate or not. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, totally. And uh, th then there's like this kind of and it, this is like I think a lot of Bama listeners are going to be familiar with this, but there can be a paranoia about like. It, am I allowed to think about this? Am I allowed to ask the question? You know, don't think about it. Don't think about it. Turn and look the other way. Because if I, if I do, if I doubt it, if I question it, if I'm skeptical about it, um, then like I could come to think the wrong thing about God. And then, you know, it's like the, the slippery slope and before long, like you don't, you don't believe in anything. Um, that's where doubt leads, right? Is doubt leads to just, uh, they walked away from the faith. And now they don't have any faith anymore because, and if they had just not doubted, right, if they had maintained their certainty, then everything would have been okay. You know what I'm saying? Yep. Yep. I think, though, that there is a kind of doubt that can be really uh, beneficial for us. Um, Beekner talks about this as head doubt, which is like skepticism or pessimism. 
And I was talking with a friend who's like in, um, he's, he's like a computer scientist and he said that skepticism can be a really helpful tool. It's a tool that we can use when we analyze something we analyze with skepticism because what that does is it leads to a better understanding of whatever the thing is that, you know, we're, we're looking at. Um, Mm -hmm. now it can also be like doubt the intellectual cognitive kind of doubt can also be a tool that we use to evade and avoid, right? Like something is beckoning us to genuine engagement, but it's like, ah, like I, I'm going to like throw up this wall of like all of this skepticism, right? Because I think we can, we can feel skeptical. We can feel doubt about pretty much anything. If we want to, like we can poke a thousand holes and we can always find a reason why it might not be this or it might not be that. Right. I think that's a trap that I fall into quite often myself. Yeah. And it's it's like, it can be harmful. Um, but I think it's also possible to like, you know, because these doubts just exist at like a cognitive level, uh, it's possible to get uh, kind of into a fit with them, but then still go on living your life as though nothing really unusual has happened. Like you still go back and like you are your, a certain way with your neighbors and you treat your family a certain way, you know, and you do these things and you go on living where those those doubts, the quote unquote doubts that you have, the skepticism, it it's kind of like a mental exercise, you know, but it doesn't really reach down into the deepest core of our being. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, and I think these doubts can be like this kind of doubt can be a pretty much a, about pretty much anything. Um, like even does God exist or is God like that? And these are the questions that I was kind of told, like, don't think about those, you know, um, don't engage with them because then that leads down the slippery slope and then you'll be unbelieving. This was like the concern of, you know, people uh when i went off to a secular state college from uh from high school and people in the youth group were like oh is it are you gonna like they got all kinds of ideas there and stuff and we're like we're encouraged to protect and not engage with those things because of where it can lead you know right yeah um but yeah i mean i can i can question if god exists and that doesn't have to be like a terrible thing and i can still go on living my life as though god does exist or like we do this other like i thought like you know we wonder well we're skeptical we doubt is the president like innocent or is the economy in a recession and yet we still go on living our lives like those things don't reach down into the core and then i think there's like a a different doubt um, that happens sometimes, uh, Beekner talks about this. This is kind of a small aside, but he talks about the doubt that Jesus experienced on the cross, which he calls stomach doubt. It's like gut doubt, um, where, uh, there's like a deep unsettledness and that's different from just having questions about the nature of the Bible or the nature of God. Um, this is like an existential dread kind of thing. Um, like I'm thinking about my mom. Uh, my my mom's dad died in a car accident when she was 18 years old, and she told me that after that she always felt like um, she just lost this feeling of safety, like she couldn't trust that the world was a safe place, which was like a a, a much deeper seated doubt that was born of this. Uh, like experience, you know, it's not just about what you think, but it's something that happens that drives you into 
uh, that state almost like this abyss. And even other things can speak to the contrary. No, like it's, you know, like it is, there's a lot of safety in the world. And yet, like her feeling of that, her ability to trust that was kind of taken away. Um, and I don't know that everybody experiences this kind of doubt uh, where they feel down in their core that like things are just so unsettled. Um, some of us are able to like, we have the gift of living life without that rocking us to the core. Uh, and to those who feel that I, I don't always know what to say other than maybe just to point to Jesus on the cross who he also experienced that same thing. Um, but yeah, I just, I wanted to, to highlight that. Cause I think sometimes like those, we hear doubt, we hear people questioning things about God or things about the Bible or things about theology. And like, for some people, they get super alarmed because those questions are being asked. Um, but that like, that's not, uh, just to say that that's not like necessarily the worst thing. And it can actually be something that is necessary or essential in the process of like coming to know God more fully. And I think we engage this type of doubt all the time, Mm. uh, in the, in the sense that we don't like to, uh, share passages or verse numbers or whatever, because it's like, we want people to have, and, and I don't know if this is necessarily the motivation behind it, but I'm just thinking like, if people doubt like, Oh, is that really in there? Or or where does it say that? Or I don't remember it saying that. And that forces people to get into their Bibles. Mm. Like, yeah, that, that is a positive thing for sure. Yeah. I mean, you're, you're, uh, you are honing a blade, you're sharpening it, um, by putting it to the grindstone. Right. Right. So I, I wonder if like, this is kind of the doubt and that Thomas is feeling if it's this kind of a doubt. Um, and I want to contrast his doubt here. We're going to go back to the passage with the disciples. Um, so we've already heard a few things about them. They were hiding behind those locked doors because they were afraid. Um, and, uh, Jesus shows up and they see his hands in his side and they're glad. Um, and it says that Thomas isn't there. And I want to pause there for a second Thomas was not there with them, and that's why they have to report to him, like, hey, we saw the Lord. And he's like, well, I won't believe that. But he's why is he not there? Because when I thought about it, I was like, oh, in other words, is this saying that Thomas isn't hiding? The other disciples mm. are hiding. They're afraid. Thomas, like, maybe he, I don't know, like, I don't, I, I don't pretend to know his whole mental state. But maybe it's saying something that, like, at least he's not up there, shut up behind the doors. Um, he's he's not hiding. Like, it, you know, maybe I, – I really don't know. Um, but if they're thinking, like, oh, man, our, we, we thought he was the one who would redeem Israel. You know, this was the rabbi, and now he's, now he's gone. We don't know. What to, and maybe – I don't know. Maybe Thomas is out there just carrying on doing – whatever he had seen Jesus doing previously, you know, he's like, well, I didn't see Jesus hiding behind doors. So I'm going to keep living life. I don't really know, but I think, you know, maybe if I were going to write a midrash about this, uh, I would have Thomas out there, like still going about doing the things that Jesus had been about even pre-crucifixion. Yeah. Oh man. That's, that's a fun possibility. Yeah. Yeah. So they, they say, so he's, he's not hiding. We can say that at least. They say, hey, we've seen the Lord, and then he makes a statement. And then and then, what does it say next? Let's keep going uh, in verse 26 there, Brent. 
A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Okay, stop. Though the doors were locked? Haven't they seen the Lord? This has already happened. They were in the locked room. Jesus (laughs) showed up. He said, Peace. He breathed on them, Brent. He he said he breathed on them and said, "Receive the Holy Spirit." And then said, "As the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you." And where are they? <laughs> a week later, they're still in a locked room. A week later, they're inside again. Now maybe they went out. I don't know what they were doing in that week, but they're still hiding behind the doors. Wow. And so my question is like, yeah, they they saw Jesus and they're like, cool. We believe the resurrected Jesus. And they're glad, quote unquote, about it. Like, I, I'm seeing that in kind of a, a smug way. Like, yeah, you're, that's nice. You're, you were made, you felt a little better after that. But you're still behind the doors. And I wonder, is that a kind of lived doubt? Is hiding behind the locked doors, does that count as doubt? We see Thomas as the doubting one because he's saying the thing. Yeah, unless I see, I won't believe. Which, remember, they've, they've already seen... Um, it reminds me, this is maybe not the most, uh, well, I'm, I'm going to make it. This is maybe not the most appropriate reference. Have you ever seen a movie called Scarface with Al Pacino? I have not. Okay. Well, it's a gangster movie and it's about dealing drugs and a whole lot of things that we wouldn't condone. Lots of violence and stuff like that. Do not watch this. <laughs> do not watch this with your children. But Pacino is this guy who's an immigrant to the country and he's made his way as into being kind of a drug kingpin. And he's at the country club one day uh, and people kind of look at him sideways because he doesn't look like them and, you know, all that kind of thing. And, and he starts making a scene and they're kicking him out of the country club and he looks around at everybody and he's like, you know what? You're just like me. I'm just I'm just honest enough to admit it. You we're all doing the same thing. I'm just coming out and saying what we're doing. Like you're all stealing, you're all robbing. It looks it looks official, it looks nice, but you're all doing the same thing I'm doing. I'm just upfront about it. And there's part of me that sees Thomas like in this way. Um he's he's just saying what they're not saying. And maybe he, as you pointed out with the other John passage, like maybe we've already seen this kind of streak in him when he's like, yeah, we don't know the way. Like he's speaking up and saying what nobody else is saying. I don't really know, but that's kind of how I'm reading it. Um, but it seems like uh, we can, the, the disciples can be in a place of like, yeah, we accept, we see, we're glad. And yet we're not going out and doing like the belief is all cognitive, right? It's all upstairs and it's not actually spurring them into anything that makes any difference for them. I don't know. Do you think I'm being unfair? No, no. And I have some more thoughts uh, for when we get a little deeper into the passage. Okay. Okay. Um, But yeah, so I think like uh, the contrast between Thomas and the disciples uh, is it, it tells me that we can be the same about belief as we are about doubt. So we can have like a cognitive doubt, like what Thomas is experiencing, and we can have a lived doubt, like what the disciples I think are maybe experiencing, if I can take that liberty and say that. And I think belief can be the same. We can have a cognitive belief and we can also have a lived belief. So the cognitive belief, um, which is like, yeah, I agree to all the things, you know, I agree that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, all that sounds great. 
And yet, like, in a sense, we're still hiding behind the doors. Or we can have the lived belief where we're going out and and following. And it also tells me that uh, you can have cognitive uh, faith, the lived out, right? This, so this is like the golden ticket kind of gospel model, which is, you know, just say the thing and you get to go to heaven. And it doesn't really matter what you do with your life. I wonder if it's also possible, though, as we look at the people around us who are doubting, maybe as we look at Thomas himself, is it possible to have a cognitive doubt and still have a lived belief or a lived faith where it's like, yeah, I don't know, actually. Like, I don't, I don't know for sure that God exists. Like, I can't prove that. Or I don't know for sure that, you know, the Bible is like this or that this means this. I don't, I don't know for sure. I'm not certain. And yet I'm going to lean into maybe their experiences that we've been given that have caused like a, in the same way that we can have doubt triggered, like my mom's, like by experiences. And that doubt is not, um, it's not rational in the sense, not that it's irrational, but that it's like, it's not at the level of like what we think. Right. And I wonder if we can too, and we've talked about this before, uh, with the whole Heschel thing, the last, one of the last episodes that we did together, but you can have a belief or a faith that like exists at a level deeper than just what you think. And that like other things can't really take that away. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah. So just something to think about for all of us. Um, the people we're looking at, do they have doubt, but they live belief? Do they have, do they have no cognitive doubt, but they're also not really living in any way like they believe? Um, what, the question, that's a question for ourselves first and foremost. Yeah. I, I think that's incredibly freeing to have the yeah. idea that we, we can be living our faith and yet there are doubts and that's okay. Yeah. And it's a warning too. It's a dangerous warning of like, we cannot have any quote unquote doubts and then also be, you know, hiding hiding behind the doors. Uh, yeah. So then Jesus responds to Thomas. What does he say? Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. So as I kind of got at before, I think a lot here for me, at least rides on what is the tone of voice that I hear Jesus talking with? The words are what they are, but there is a way that this could be said and we could hear Jesus kind of scalding Thomas uh, scolding Thomas, not scolding him, scolding him, or <laughs> I don't want to pull a Marty here and start saying words that aren't right. Well, um, I mean, that could be a very, very different sort of picture. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, definitely not scalding. Um, but do we hear him as scolding him as reprimanding him? Or do we hear him as like speaking gently, uh, with compassion? Um, and I know that like my previous, my, myself from many years ago, who, I uh, used to have all of my ducks in a row and I knew all of the answers um, and I had no cognitive doubt whatsoever. Uh, and I thought that I agreed with Tozer. What you think about God is the most important thing about you. And that was nice for me because I knew, of course, that I thought all the right things, Brent. I didn't have any wrong thoughts. Oh, I, yeah. No, I didn't either. Yeah. So obviously the most important thing about a person, I had like the best possible record for it. So, you know, I was sitting in a really good position. And then I would hear Jesus, the way that I heard him talking to Thomas here was like, ah, Thomas, uh, fine, put your finger here. If that's what you got to do, you know, put your hand right. on my side. If that's what you need, you know, like he's, he's kind of shaming him as he's letting him, uh, do the thing. And then it's like, ah, finally, okay. You can stop disbelieving now and believe. Um, but I wonder if there's a different way for us to hear 
the tone of Jesus here, a different way for us to see like the heart of Jesus as he is letting Thomas meet him here. Um, I think it's interesting that like the places that Thomas is trying to touch or that he's wanting to touch are like these, these places of pain. Um, there's like wounds here um, that apparently are still, still there. Uh, and to me, there's something kind of beautiful about Jesus, like in solidarity, like reaching out with like his pain to maybe the, the pain of Thomas uh, and connecting with him there. I just see that as really um, gentle and it's like the divine sympathy. Yeah. And I wonder like going back to the John 14 passage, mm. he says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Mm-hmm. And Jesus responds, he says, if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and I've seen him. Mm-hmm. And then, and then I, I'm really intrigued by the idea that Philip is addressed by name in Jesus' mm. response, because that response goes on for a long time. Mm. And I need, I need uh, all the way up until they, they actually leave that spot. Right. Oh, no, no, no. Judas actually does have a question in the middle there, but but there's a couple of paragraphs of response that could be somewhat directed to Philip. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously they're all there, but like, I, I just wonder like, to what extent is Jesus locked into Philip? Mm. Because it does say, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you mm. such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Don't you believe? And I don't, I, I need to, I need to look into this and see, are these, is each instance of you singular or plural mm, and where yeah. does it shift? That's a good question. So I don't know. I, I definitely have some questions there. Um, but yeah, I kind of, I kind of think maybe in John 20, it's like, you've seen enough. Like, okay, here's, go ahead, put your finger here, mm-hmm. see my hands, mm-hmm. touch my side. Mm-hmm. And now for real, Thomas, you have enough. Yeah. Stop, stop at the doubting. Yeah. Really, truly believe. Yeah. And maybe that's a challenging word for some of us who, you know, cause it can be kind of in vogue to just like, we can't really know anything, man. Like, you know, and maybe it's like, there comes a time where it's like, no, like it's time to, to put it down and believe. Now I say that. And I also would point out that Thomas, even if Jesus is directing himself to Philip in that John 14 passage, Thomas is still there and he still definitely can hear what Jesus is saying. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and when I, when he says to Thomas here, put your finger here, what he's, what, what he, cause, uh, what was the line you said from John 14 from now on you have seen, right. Yeah. What Jesus doesn't say to Thomas here in John 20 is, well, I told you before Thomas from now on you've seen, like, we're not doing this again. You know, right. uh, he, he bears with him. He's like, okay, if this is what you need, here it is. And now, as you said, and I like, I really like that you pointed that out. Now, put that down and believe. And it, it, I don't, this is maybe a stretch of a connection. What it reminds me of is the woman caught in adultery, how Jesus steps in to meet her and to rescue her, right? And, uh, he, he, uh, he comforts her and affirms her, like, I'm not condemning you. And all of that happens before he gives her any condition, right? There's no like, well, you got to clean up your act and then, you know what I mean? Or Jesus is like, ah, you gotta, you gotta believe, I gotta know that you're really sure. And then I'll let you see. It's not like that, right? It goes the other way where it's like, okay, I'm going to meet you on your level. Here is what you need. I'm responding to you graciously. And now I'm telling you 
like with the woman caught in adultery, don't sin anymore. Like go and don't sin anymore. Or he's saying to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but be believing, but believe, you know. If it's that cognitive doubt that Thomas Mm-hmm. has going on and if his if his posture is just a reflexive doubt on basically everything yeah and and he can't engage anything because he's just like as soon as anything happens just boom yeah like gotta have some question about it gotta have some skepticism yeah and, and yeah. so maybe it's that jesus is charging him like okay you gotta you gotta stop with that pattern yes. of behavior you gotta live out your belief but at the same time Thomas wasn't there hiding. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I mean, and it, I, I don't know. Um, let's, this is good. This is a good segue into, can you go ahead and finish out chapter 20, uh, the 28 through 31? Then Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. These, So I hear this is actually kind of being the end proper of the book of John, and then 21 is kind of like this epilogue. Um, and so this is, to me, I hear this as like, this is the closing line of the book. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. John is not uh, vague about his intent. I want you to believe. That's why I'm writing this down. And I think it makes like beautiful and dramatic sense then that the climax of the book here at the very end, like the last scene centers around this skepticism, this cognitive disbelief uh, and the transformation into belief. So that when Thomas says, so, you know, when Jesus shows himself to the disciples, they're quote unquote glad. Like, yeah, they were glad. Jesus, and then they go on with their lived doubt, right? Of like hiding, still continuing to hide. Thomas, he's met by Jesus. He sees the hands. He places his hand on the side, does the whole thing. And his response is like, I hear him saying it like breathlessly, you know, like almost in a whisper, my Lord and my God. Like there is, an exclamation. He can't even say a full sentence, right? It's just an exclamation. Right. Uh, and he comes to confess the belief, the very belief that John is like, this is what this book is about. I want you to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And Thomas, two sentences before that has just been your example, your model of what this is, of how this goes. And so far from Thomas being somebody who's like, oh, Thomas, you doubting Thomas, it's almost like Thomas is upheld as like, this is, this is the perfect example of what this can look like. And that like being up front with his uh, doubts, like saying this, the thing that maybe nobody else wanted to say, that was what got him into the position uh, where this could happen in the first place. Yeah. So on that, on Thomas's statement there, uh, the NET footnote on it has a few possibilities of like, is he just responding to, like, if we, if we assume previously that there was a direct object there and he was, he was just saying, I will not, I will not believe that he has risen, mm. uh, is Thomas saying here, my Lord and my God has risen. Oh. Like, is he, is he just coming back <laughs> around and saying that? And then, mm. and they don't, they don't think that's the the most likely possibility, but they, you know, it could just be like a, 
like we're reading it here, just a like a breathless, yeah. like vocative, like recognition of who Jesus is in this moment. Yeah. Or is it a is it a confession of Jesus specifically and and him like pledging allegiance to Jesus or or re pledging at least? Like, yeah. oh you you are my Lord and my God. Okay, got it. So Yeah, uh, I mean I th- I see it. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, we don't necessarily have time to explore all those possibilities, but just want to point out that there are some yeah. different interpretive possibilities there. Uh, the other thing they point out was at the end, these are written that you may believe. Uh, and the manuscript evidence is a little bit rocky on that, mm. uh, where it could be, these are written that you may continue to believe. Mm. So there's this sure. whole question about, is the audience of John a group of believers and uh, he is encouraging them and strengthening them in their faith, or is it um, more of an evangelistic tool and he is showing proof and evidence that would lead someone to believe. So, yeah, I mean, I think he's writing to, I think he's writing to the church in the late first century uh, and he's writing to Christians who are being persecuted. They're being cast out of like synagogues and driven out of their homes and, uh, kicked out of their families. Um, and so the, I think the church, as they heard the gospel of John in that first early setting, when they see the disciples, when they read the disciples hiding behind the doors, they see themselves. And yeah, and again, I don't think it's scolding. It's like, well, this is the life that we live. We're hiding. We're afraid because look at all that's happening to us. Right. Uh, and, uh, John is making the case like Jesus is among you now. Jesus appears to you now. And some of you are like Thomas who are like, maybe you're even doubting whether he was really raised or not because it's been, you know, a generation or two since that happened. Uh, and, and maybe you don't believe, but here I'm saying this so that you will remember and continue. I think it's a content, like continue believing makes perfect sense to me. Continue on in what you have been told, believing that, and in following, like going out and remember Jesus, the risen Jesus is not just there to stay with you in the locked room, but he's sending you out, uh, you know, first century Christians. Uh, and so remember that he breathed the spirit into us. Remember that he sent us out and may we also do that. Yeah. Yeah. And when it comes to what, you know, Thomas meant, I, we've talked about the seeing heart, that sermon from Frederick Buechner before, when we talked about truth and fact, and Buechner just says, I think that Thomas here sees the truth of Jesus for the first time when he had only been seeing the facts of Jesus for a long time. And what he saw was something that made him ex- exclaim, he could only say, my Lord and my God, which is to me speaking to that, like, here is an experience now that is so deep down in him uh, that uh, he will not be shaken from it. This is now a belief that is like deeper than cognition. You know, it's like down to the core of his being. Uh, and who knows where Thomas will go and what he will do from here. So one more contrast that I noticed between mm-hmm. Thomas's, uh, you know, experience with Jesus. Obviously, the rest of the disciples are there. Uh, at least it, it doesn't actually say that all 12 were there in this case. Um, does it say that? Where does it say the 12? I thought it said the 12 somewhere. Oh, I think it's just the disciples. Oh, it was just saying Thomas is one of the 12. Yeah. Okay. So okay. it doesn't necessarily say that all of them are there um, in any of these instances. But in the first instance, when Jesus appears, when Thomas is not there, mm-hmm. Jesus says, peace be with you. He shows them. It says they were overjoyed or glad, mm-hmm. um, but it doesn't have them speaking. 
And then again, Jesus says, peace be with you. I'm sending you. Mm -hmm. Uh, He says, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive your sins, blah, blah, blah. They don't ever talk. They don't (laughs) respond at all. And then Thomas, when he sees the exact same thing that they said, Jesus appears in the midst of a locked door. He says, peace be with you. He says, check out my hands, check Mm -hmm. out my side. Mm -hmm. And then Thomas actually responds. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and he preempts it too. Like he speaks on the front end, unless I see. Sure. Uh, and then I won't believe. And then but that's my Lord, a conversation my God. with the disciples. Well, yeah, but I'm just saying maybe throughout this story, like Thomas is the only disciple saying any specific words. Um, and so maybe it is the like he's he's saying what everybody else wasn't saying, or he's just chosen to be the mouthpiece here in the story. Uh, to to give a place for like, okay, we need to voice like everybody has the doubt, the cognitive doubt, you know, everybody's like, was he really raised? Uh, and Thomas is the one who's going to say that. So don't pick on Thomas, identify with Thomas, recognize that he's speaking for you. And uh, uh, hopefully, too, he speaks for you when you have the experience and then you are able to exclaim my Lord and my God, like he, he speaks for all of us. Yeah. Yeah. And the NET footnote. Uh, somewhere, I can't remember where it was, but it, it's talking about like, oh, now that Thomas has finally come to his belief, all the disciples are fully on board and we can conclude this gospel. It's like, well, I don't actually know. (laughs) Like, I do think that Thomas comes to a full and complete belief, like just Mm -hmm. rock solid to his core. Like as far as that gut doubt, like it's all gone. Like everything he has is just a solid foundation of belief. I, I don't necessarily know that we see that with the rest of the disciples yet, especially like, yeah, they well, have their experience with Jesus. They don't say anything a week later. They're still behind a locked door. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think it's like a, you know, a completion of belief and a, you know, still room for improvement kind of thing. Sure. Yeah. And and we talked about that in another episode. I can't remember what it was, but um something like uh you know, Jesus is saying things as if as if things are finalized or that they have I can't what was it? It was a few a few chapters ago, I think, where Jesus made a statement where it's like, Okay, but that's not actually true based on what they're saying and what they're doing. But Jesus is saying it like, you know, like I have confidence in you guys, even though you're not quite there yet, like we, we have done what we need to do. You guys have what it takes. And so I realized that, you know, it's going to be another yeah. 40 days until Pentecost until you like mm. actually have that like, Oh yeah. Okay. Now I feel confident. Mm. Like it's, we're not there yet, but I, I know that you have what it takes. So, I don't know. yeah. Okay. Um, I want to, I want to finish up. Um, cause man, we're, we're doing it again, Brent. We're going long. Um, I want to read two <laughs> things. I want to read uh, an excerpt from uh, Frederick Buechner, which who I talk about all the time, and I can't not. Also, he died uh, last month, so oh, man. rest in peace, Buechner. The world is a sadder place without you, uh, for sure, but it's also gladder because of you. So, uh, yeah, he's he's gone now. So to honor him and also to wrap up the talk about belief, I want to read a few paragraphs, and then I want to read one other thing after that. So Buechner says this about belief. Um, and he's contrasting the difference between um, believing in something as just kind of a, yeah, I believe it, and then believing something like with the core of who you are. So he says this, 
Believing in God, believing in God is an intellectual position. It need have no more effect on your life than believing in Freud's method of interpreting dreams or the theory that St. Francis Bacon wrote Romeo and Juliet. Believing God is something else again. It is less a position than a journey, less a realization than a relationship. It doesn't leave you cold like believing the world is round. It stirs your blood like believing the world is a miracle. It affects who you are and what you do with your life, like believing your house is on fire or somebody loves you. We believe in God when, for one reason or another, we choose to do so. We believe God when somehow we run into God in a way that, by and large, leaves us no choice to do otherwise. When Jesus says that whoever believes him, in that second sense, shall never die, he does not mean that to be willing to sign your name to the Nicene Creed guarantees eternal life. Eternal life is not the result of believing in, it is the experience of believing. Mm. Mm -hmm. And then, okay, the last thing I want to read uh, is a poem. And shout out to my Israel people who let me read to them. It was very great. Uh, Now I'm going to read to everybody else over this podcast. Um, This is a poem by Denise Levertoff called St. Thomas Didymus. It's from a book called The Stream and the Sapphire, a collection of poems. Uh, and this is written from the point of view of Thomas. Um, and it's joining him it's, it's, it's joining him as he watches. There's the story in Mark 9 where the man has the son who has like the seizures. And he utters that famous line, I believe, help my unbelief. You remember this? Yes. It's like one one of the most beautiful lines in the Gospels to me. Actually, I, for a long time, genuinely thought that Thomas said that. And then I was like, wait a minute, Thomas didn't say that? Um, so I guess, <laughs> I guess I was on to something with Denise Levertov here in this poem. So this is Thomas narrating, uh, watching this event from Mark 9 go down, and then leading into uh, the uh, event of uh, John 20 that we just read. So uh, a couple of minutes here. This is St. Thomas Didymus by Denise Levertov. In the hot street at noon, I saw him, a small man, gray but vivid, standing forth beyond the crowds buzzing, holding in desperate grip his shaking, teeth-gnashing son, and thought him my brother. I heard him cry out, weeping, and speak those words, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief, and knew him my twin a man whose entire being had knotted itself into the one tight-drawn question, why? Why has this child lost his childhood and suffering? Why is this child, who will soon be a man, tormented, torn, twisted? Why is he cruelly punished who has done nothing except be born? The twin of my birth was not so close as that man I heard say what my heart sighed with each beat, my breath silently cried in and out, in and out. After the healing, he, with his wondering, newly peaceful boy, receded. No one dwells on the gratitude, the astonished joy, the swift acceptance and forgetting. I did not follow to see their changed lives. What I retained was the flash of kinship. Despite all that I witnessed, his question remained my question, throbbed like a stealthy cancer known only to doctor and patient. To others, I seemed well enough. 
So it was that after Golgotha, my spirit in secret lurched in the same convulsed writhings that tore that child before he was healed. And after the empty tomb, when they told me he lived, had spoken to Magdalene, told me that though he had passed through the door like a ghost, he had breathed on them the breath of a living man, even then when hope tried with a flutter of wings to lift me, still alone with myself, my heavy cry was the same. Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I needed blood to tell me the truth, the touch of blood. Even my sight of the dark crust of it round the nail holes didn't thrust its meaning all the way through to that manifold knot in me that willed to possess all knowledge, refusing to loosen unless that insistence won the battle I fought with life. But when my hand, led by his hand's firm clasp, entered the unhealed wound, my fingers encountering rib bone and pulsing heat, what I felt was not scalding pain, shame for my obstinate need, but light, light streaming into me, over me, filling the room as if I had lived till then in a cold cave, and now coming forth for the first time, the knot that bound me, Unraveling, I witnessed all things quicken to color, to form, my question not answered, but given its part in a vast unfolding design lit by a risen sun. Scene. Hmm. Uh, so, I, yeah, it, I read that poem a thousand times and it gets me every time. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's good yeah i definitely think if i was listening to our podcast episode mm. i would probably back back it up and listen to that once yeah. or twice again or, as well. yeah you can find it go go find it online just search denise levertoff uh saint thomas didymus and just read it yourself and read it a thousand times and then uh it'll work its yeah. way into you somehow i'll find a link for that and put it in the show notes Cool, cool. Uh, yeah, that's that's all I really have. So if we want to go ahead and finish out for posterity's sake, uh, the last uh, <laughs> assigned bit here from chapter 21, and we can uh, take it home. We will finish for our verbal contractual obligation, actually. I, I do love contractual obligations, so let's do it. <laughs> but our character is not done. He does, he does show up here. So He um, sure does, yeah. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. Uh, actually the, so the note says in the Greek, it says the sea of Tiberias, which I did not realize this is of all of our John episodes. This is the very last one we were recording. So I have all of the knowledge of everything else that we've talked about. <laughs> and I came to find out in a future episode, uh, that there's some interest to the fact that it says sea of Tiberias oh, there. Really? I did not um, know that. Yeah. We'll talk about that with, um, uh, with a guest, an upcoming okay. guest. Oh. So um anyway just just something that i totally read past initially and didn't didn't think anything of it um it happened this way simon peter thomas also known as didymus nathaniel from cana in galilee the sons of zebedee and two other disciples were together i'm going out to fish simon peter told them and they said we'll go with you so they went out and got into the boat but that night they caught nothing Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? Uh, 
And this is, again, one of those Greek constructions where the assumed response is negative. Mm. And of course, they say no. Uh, They answered, he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. So Simon Peter climbed back into the boat and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153, but even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, (laughs) Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. (laughs) So many, so many funny things that are happening in this story. There are so many, but because uh, we don't need this hour or this episode to go another hour. Uh, yeah, we'll leave it for the next time we, the next time we do John. Well, I do just want to say, uh, so, uh, let's see. Yeah, John, well, we assume John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it is the Lord, presumably with confidence. And it says later, uh, you know, they knew it was the Lord. (laughs) Why does it point out none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? Well, you know, maybe it's just so confident. (laughs) Or, yeah, maybe they're like but they <laughs> they don't want to say that they actually are like is it is it him well we better not mess with that after the whole thing with thomas like nobody just everybody be believing nobody be disbelieving it's him yeah and i just wonder like what is his appearance like at this point i mean clearly he can you know go through locked doors or Apparently. something i don't know <laughs> maybe he just got to be a really good like lock pick in his resurrected state like maybe he's not just ghosting through the wall but maybe he's you know <laughs> yeah i don't know like a like, cat burglar it, it yeah it's fun to think about that but i just like <laughs> is he just does he have like a little bit of a glow about it like what what is it that's making them like sort of doubt but like they know it's him but they're they're also like you kind of look different jesus I yeah know. i mean i i mean you would think you that someone who are... rises from the dead would probably look a little different i don't know you would think so you would but think so. the other interesting thing that I, I don't think I ever realized before is that Jesus doesn't cook the fish that they just caught. He already has fish on the coals when they get to the shore. Oh, uh, yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that's a great observation. And I, I, like, I literally just noticed that. I, I've read through this, I don't know how many times in my yeah. life. And I've, I've, I always thought like, oh, no, that's right. They're catching fish and then they're eating it. But no, Jesus already has fish yeah. on the coals. Verse nine, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it. Yeah. Mm. Funny. But then, but then he says, bring some of the fish that you've just caught. Right. So he wants them what? to bring, well, I mean, I don't, he wants them to bring their fish to like add to his fish, you know, and then you know, the whole like, gentile thing like this is about gentile nations and it's almost like jesus jesus is like i've got this started i've got some on Mm. the grill yeah now you bring yours you know you you're in this too we're all in this together is kind of how i'm hearing that okay 
Okay, well, man. Well, I think we did it. <laughs> we did it. Just two hours and 47 minutes long. No problem. <laughs> no, not quite. Not quite. But uh, good conversation with no shortage of things to dig into. For sure. Uh, you know, among the things that we talked about at length, no shortage. And uh, especially in uh, this first part of chapter 21, there's plenty Definitely. to look at. So we'll leave it there for now. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Marty, you can find him on Twitter at Marty Solomon. I'm at EIBCB. And of course, Reed is occasionally on the Baymoss Slack. So you can hop in there mm-hmm. um, and chat with Reed and let him know your thoughts about all this stuff. And yeah, uh, yeah. good stuff today. Yeah. So you can find more details about the show at BaymontDiscipleship.com. Thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast today. We'll talk to you again soon.